I'm Summer Falgiano, and you're tuned in to Badasses in Tech. Today, we're joined by Connie Guillermo, Editor-in-Chief at CNET, the world's largest consumer tech publication. In this episode, Connie gives us a glimpse inside her newsroom, discusses the pandemic's impact on the tech beat, and shares what she believes is in store for the future of journalism. I always wanted to be a reporter. From the time I was young, I loved writing stories. I loved the whole idea of having my little reporter's notebook and going out and interviewing people and asking questions and finding stuff out. Um, I learned how to type when I was in high school because uh, at the time they taught women how to type so that you could get a job as a secretary one day. But I wanted to be a reporter typing stories out and I got really good at typing so that I could um, type conversations in real time as people were having them. So I I typed really fast. Um, Then I went to college, wrote for the college paper um, and realized that I really wanted to be a journalist. But there were no jobs in journalism when I graduated from school with my little clips from the UCLA Daily Bruin. So I spent two years in PR as a writer, writing press releases and profiles and you know, internal communications and really understanding how um, communication worked from that perspective. And uh, then I applied to grad school, went to grad school at Stanford here in Silicon Valley, which is also where I live. And at the time, the Macintosh had been around for a few years and people were talking about using personal computers at home. And there was a time when a lot of us didn't have technology at home, which is, I think, something that people forget. It's been a massive change in our lifetime. And I got my master's in journalism. And just at that same time, the whole tech industry was starting up. So I got a job for a weekly publication in San Francisco called Mac Week, which was looking at really specifically the world of Apple and the Macintosh computer. And it was fascinating. I loved it. Um, I had to learn about technology on the job. And I read, I think for six months straight, every question you can possibly imagine. There are a few of us who are women on that team, but it was a lot of men who were writing about technology at the time. And so you really needed to know what you were asking, but there's also an advantage to having enough knowledge to ask a question, but not enough knowledge where you can say, or you feel uncomfortable saying, yeah, I really don't understand how that works. Could you explain it to me in really simple terms? Cause I'm not an engineer. And, you know, in the early days of Apple and the Macintosh, it was being uh, basically a big fish in a small pond. A lot of, a lot of people weren't paying tech- attention to technology then. It really wasn't, <laughs> I know it's kind of funny to think about it now, but uh it didn't really have an effect on the economy, the way that we lived, the way that we worked. It was just really starting to. So I was really lucky to be able to get in at the very start of the whole personal computer industry, again, through my experience in tech. And from there, I joined another publication called Interactive Week that was writing about this other new thing that was starting called the internet and dot-com economy. So I got to meet some people very early on In that world, I interviewed the folks at Netscape, which had created this thing called a browser. They're like uh, two miles from my house. I talked to um, Jeff Bezos, you know, as he was cranking up this thing called Amazon to sell books in the early days. But then they were thinking of, you know, selling other things. Um, I talked to Pierre Omidyar, who was starting eBay, which was a place that he talked about where you could find and bid 
like a game on unusual items. So it was really just the start of all of that. So I watched the dot-com rise, the dot-com crash, and really just became solidly a tech reporter. But, you know, I was a poli-sci major undergrad. I wrote for our little student paper, but my time in PR was for a tech startup in Los Angeles. And I learned how to use a personal computer very early on and how to manage databases and never really done a lot of coding, but just minimal scripting. And of course, I was playing computer games with all of my friends. I still think Zork is the best computer game ever written because there's no graphics. It's all in your head. And um, and so from there, I just have progressed. And six years ago, after a career at Bloomberg and Forbes and writing for Wired and Upside, a lot of tech-centric publications, I took on the leadership role for news at CNET, which, as I say, was a, a very uh, long-lived tech site that was kind of getting, you know, not as much as attention as they should have, because there's so many people now writing about technology. And so my job has been to really um, bring back uh, interest in CNET, which obviously we've done. We're still the world's largest consumer tech site. We're, we're, we've grown. And over the course of my time there, I went from being the news editor to leading news and advice. Um, and now all of CNET Edit is under my um, domain. Wow. Congratulations. You've accomplished a lot over over all of that time. And, you know, I, I've heard I heard you say you were able to kind of learn how to type fast and that you kind of learned really quickly how to get your feet wet and, and just enough information to kind of be dangerous in conversations. And, you know, it sounds like you uh, you you really led led the charge for journalism and, and especially women in journalism to kind of rise to um, this this editor in chief position. I'm curious, what would you say is your secret sauce? Like what what kind of uh, differentiates you from from all of your peers? I mean, there are a lot of smart journalists. And I want to say that when I started, there were a handful of us um, women tech journalists, but there are many, many, many women tech journalists today who don't get the recognition that they deserve because there are few uh, reporters get a lot of, you know, uh, attention for their work. And unfortunately, a lot of women don't get the recognition they deserve. So that's unfortunate. For me personally, I grew up in New York and I'm not afraid to ask questions of anybody. So you really, to be a good reporter, you need to not be afraid to talk to anybody about anything or to go up to them and I'm not saying be disrespectful and um, and it's important that you know what you're going to ask and you um, are fair-minded and open-minded about the work that you're doing as a reporter. But if you're afraid to talk to people and ask questions, this is not the, not the job for you. Being a, an editor or the editor-in-chief, you need a bunch of skills. You need to be a good reporter that's asking questions. You need to be a good writer which is communication. And a lot of organizations, we have great reporters who are not great writers. And we have great writers who are not great reporters. So it's really finding out what your skill set is and how you want to spend your day. So we have lots of editors who are great reporters and, and writers, but some of them are better at one thing than the other. And so they become editors because they want to shape coverage either through polishing the language or asking questions and getting those reporters to go back and do more work. As the editor-in-chief, I manage people. And I would say that being a working mother has taught me patience and how to be 
goal oriented in how you communicate with people. Reporters, as anybody will tell you, are smart. They are aggressive. They are arrogant. They are determined and they are, have strong personalities. And so you have to respect that that is the personality type for a lot of journalists, not all of them, but most of them. And then learning how to work with that diverse set of personalities is part of managing. I, again, I'm a working mom of two. I'm very goal oriented. I make lists, I plan my work and work my plan and I change my plan as I need to. So it's, it's all of those skill sets together. And for me personally, I wanted to lead a newsroom um, because I think that journalism is under threat. People don't understand the value of journalism today, or at least there's lots more questions about it. We have a whole debate about what is real news and what is fact and what is not fact and what the role of a good journalist is. And I wanted to be part of a newsroom and show that you could be a valued news organization, that people could thrive and survive and do really good work, uh, both for the people on the staff, but the people reading it, that that this is a career and an industry that is worth time and attention, and it needs to be part of our democracy if we want to continue to have a democracy. So, I love that. Yeah, it's so much more than just the clickbait, you know, articles that we're seeing on Facebook, and there's not even like real news in that. So I'm, I love, I love hearing that. You know, not only are you as an editor very focused on. Uh, putting putting news out there in a consumable way, but also you're you're working with staff around the world. You mentioned, which I'd be interested in hearing how you've kind of managed with everything uh, completely remote. You know, we're all digital first. Um, not to mention the pressures of just the pandemic and the political atmosphere. How would you say you keep your your writers and your reporters motivated and kind of focused on those goals that you were talking about? So when the pandemic hit and we were all sent home, which for us at CNET was in March of last year, we were unlike a lot of other newsrooms. And now everybody on my team was already very tech savvy. Like nobody needed to know what a video conferencing system was. Were we using Zoom as much as we were? We are today, no, but we were using Skype and FaceTime, all sorts of tools. And uh, everyone knows how to use their, um, their mobile phone to take photos and videos and use the mobile content management system. So you could write a story from wherever you are and upload it remotely. So it really wasn't a big switch for us to work from home from a technology perspective. We didn't miss a beat. Everybody just went home the next day and have their work set up. Maybe they had to get fancier lights and a microphone if they were doing podcasts or what have you, but the technology and the comfort level for our news team was, was there. The challenge was that even though you're working at home, you're not. In a pandemic, your family is at home or your extended family. And so you are really living at work. And so what does that mean? It means that you have to embrace and understand that it's not that you're working at home nine to five. That doesn't exist anymore. If you have kids and you have to be their school teacher as well as their parent, or you have extended family members who are ill and need your attention, your, your work day has to become much more flexible. So we, the first thing we did, and again, because I'm a working mom who had to deal with a lot of inflexibility early in my career, um, we plotted out when can people work, right? Like we can't have the whole team take off every morning. 
because I'm taking care of this or that. So we had to stagger schedules. Some people needed to time shift. You know, I can work on Saturday, but I need to take Tuesday off so my partner can work that day. So we had to really think about what flexibility meant in terms of work time, because like you said, we weren't working at home. Working at home is that you're just spending the day at home and your, your other obligations are still taken care of. You've just moved your desk. But what we're doing is not that. We're really just, like I said, we're living at work. We've had to figure out what the boundaries are. So that really was a lot of our time uh, from a staff perspective and figuring that out early on and really uh, making sure that the staff, you don't apologize. If you have to take time off to deal with life or you know, hopefully nobody gets sick, but if they get sick, right? You have to build all of that into your thinking about how to run a global news operation. And fortunately we have people who are like me, forward thinking, flexible. We are each other's, you know, wingmen. We we help each other out. There's a lot of trade-offs. And then you use the digital tools. Video conferencing is just one thing. And like I said, that has become a big deal in the past year because now everybody knows that uh, Zoom is a verb and whether you want to be a cat on Zoom or not. I mean, that's a different question. But um, we were already using collaboration tools, right? I I manage newsrooms. London and Scotland start the day. They kick over to New York, Louisville, and other offices, people in other places throughout the East Coast. Then they shift over to San Francisco, which is where I am in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then at the end of our day, we transfer over to Sydney, Australia. And then Sydney takes on, and then they transfer back to London. So it was making sure we had those collaboration tools in play already, which we did. So we yeah, we use email, we use Slack as our, you know, messaging, um, instant messaging uh, platform. We have other remote tools. We, you know, Google Doc, so I can edit somebody's story and they can see all my notes, whether or not I'm in the same time zone as they are. So it was really having all of those other tools in play so that your workflow isn't interrupted. And like I said, we were already doing that because we're a global um organization. I'm based in San Francisco. I get up early to talk to people uh, in London. And then at the end of my days when uh, Sydney is coming on. So you just learn how to bridge the time zones. But I think that was new to a lot of people. There was a lot of uncertainty, whether not, not at Cena, but I just think in business in general, if people at work who are working at home are not going to be as productive, right? Oh, they're going to spend all their time, I don't know what, playing games, doing their laundry. I mean, I don't I don't know what people think. I'm always more productive when I'm at home because I don't have to commute, right? And you are focused. The problem is that, and I've already seen the data, productivity went up in 2020. Everybody was at home, Some, <laughs> right? They wanted a distraction from whatever the daily trauma was. So we're making sure that you don't burn out your staff. And tell them, I had to remind people to take your time off. Take the time off. Don't work crazy hours. I don't like to send emails late at night or early in the morning because I don't like to model that, that I'm on 24-7. So it's it's just being conscious of that whole living at work paradigm shift. What does that really mean? And then how do you manage that? So that's really what the focus of the past year has been from a, a work perspective. And then, of course, we had to change our coverage to adapt to Well, that was what I was going to ask. I could imagine the influence that this intersection, because what is the definition of consumer tech anymore when we're all 
on it, whether it's for work or for personal. So yeah, that was going to be kind of my next question. How, how was the coverage and, and your stories kind of influenced through what we're dealing with? Yeah. So again, at the end of March, when we came home, all of us came home, that was one of the first meetings I had was, okay, we're in the midst of a pandemic. It had been officially declared a pandemic. And people were like, what do you think, Connie? Is it going to last? Are we going to be at home for like two weeks or three weeks? And I was like, no. Look into your crystal ball. (laughs) (laughs) Have you read up on a pandemic? Even I know it's going to take a little longer than that. And so, okay. So CNET is a tech news site and advice site. But as you say, tech is not a a vertical anymore. It's a horizontal. It touches everything that we do. Like you could almost say that everything is tech in one way or another. So then our mission was how can we be the most helpful? Okay. So everybody's working now at home. And so people need advice on, do I get an extra monitor? How do I get an external mic? Um, How do I set my privacy settings on my VPN? Do I need a new desktop? Uh, How can I fix my posture? (laughs) Well, well, that meeting etiquette online is a whole different thing, but just practically how you set up your space. And you remember, if you have a family, you're co-sharing your network, you've got to set up time for if you have children, when they're using computers, do you have computers for them to use? So there were a lot of, there were a lot of pragmatic things that we could help with because we already look at all that stuff and can offer advice and recommendations. We started from the culture perspective, looking at our culture and science team, the science team was looking at the pandemic itself. What is COVID-19? How does it spread, right? It's the beginning. Do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? Um, it's going to be contained this way or that way or not contained. How does it spread? So there's a whole bunch of science coverage. As we moved deeper into this, whatever, pandemic, COVID world that we're living in, I mean, within a month, how many people had lost their jobs? So as a tech site, what do you say to those people? Well, Um, stimulus became a thing. Well, then how do you get your stimulus check? What is, you know, it's a lot of online um, negotiation. Make sure your online banking is connected to the IRS if you want to get a check. Do you qualify? Here's your find out information. But also, gee, I lost my job. I'm not going to get a job for a while. Maybe I want to sell my used tech. Maybe I want to buy used tech instead of that. So it was thinking about the way the world was changing from the perspective of how it was affecting people, all of us, because we were all living through it too. We saw the rise of streaming media services, right? All the jokes. I got to the end of Netflix. Now what? But um, what do you watch? How do you set it up? Which service should you pick? Do you get subscriptions to all of them? If you're lucky to have that much money, do you buy bundles? Like, So people needed a lot of pragmatic advice, not just about tech and how to use it and how to set it up, but what the possibilities were for them. And then the pandemic and the whole science has now, so we were now a year into this. So this past month in September, we were one of the uh, news organizations that looked at what was happening at CES, which is the largest uh, consumer tech show in the world, although it was virtual this year. Normally people go every January, I'm in Las Vegas walking around. And on the one hand, yes, it's great fun to walk around and see and touch new gadgets and robots and, and other things. But you didn't have to be there to know that COVID has changed the way that we're going to live and work. There's going to be screens. So you go to a restaurant in the future, hopefully. We can do that at the end of this year after we all get our uh, vaccines, still wearing a mask. And maybe instead of a server coming and taking your order, 
there are going to be glass partitions that are actually smart displays where the menu will be uh, posted and you'll talk to it and you'll order your food and then the server may or may not come or maybe a robot will come and deliver whatever you ordered so telemedicine like last year people have been talking about telemedicine for I don't even know how long but last year people were now doing their doctor's appointments and we're right and we're talking about doing surgery so what I'm saying is that we had to adapt our coverage to the reality of how the world was changing and the way to know how the world was changing was just to look at ourselves how has your life changed how many subscription services do you have how do you use your your phone today in a way that you didn't are you concerned about your privacy so it starts with, you know, being advocates for the readers by, by living what you're doing. And that maps out your coverage. So that's a journey we're still on. That never goes away. But it has meant that we've changed and expanded a lot of our coverage. Uh, last June, Black Lives Matter happened. And that has upended our society and, you know, finally brought more attention to a very longstanding problem with um, disparity in how people of different races are treated in the United States. So what can CNET write about Black Lives Matter that is authentic? We can write about it because everyone's writing about it, but that's what, what can we say? So we talked about how social media, people were organizing um, protests using social media tools and people were going to protests and they were concerned about being tracked on their smartphones or how do you go to a protest and you want to upload video or take live video footage so there was a role for us to play that was authentic to who we were but yeah through our lens of tech not because we want to cover it because it's nice and so because of that our coverage has expanded over the past year as i said science it's expanded we covered black lives matter we covered the election and all of the disinformation and concern about um electronic voting and how do voting machines work? I mean, that was a huge, huge investment of our staff. And unfortunately, right, some of it is still going on today. So it's just... So I, I would say three things about that generally. Number one, we continue to have mail-in ballots there was the highest engagement in the history of voting in the United States because it, we made it more convenient. Despite what people say about there's fraud in mail-in ballot, that is just not true. That the data does not support that. Are there a few cases here and there of you know mishandled ballots or people trying to game the system? In anything there is, there's no massive voter fraud because of mail-in ballots. So those mail-in ballots. In California, where I live, I could send in my mail-in ballot, then I could track when it got there, when it was opened, when it was counted. So I could see my ballot through the entire journey until it was recorded in the system. That's fabulous. And I hope and, and uh, believe that we should continue to make voting more accessible to people, not less accessible. Disinformation and misinformation is all about, well, we have platforms that perpetuate it. So you saw some of the platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Snap, draw the line on the kinds of information they feel should be allowed on their platforms. Everyone loves to talk about First Amendment free speech. First Amendment, if anybody has actually read it, is about the government stopping you from 
having an opportunity to speak. It has nothing to do with private companies allowing you to engage on their platforms. So the rules about how you engage on those platforms are up to the individual companies in the United States. In other countries, governments do have rules that you cannot lie blatantly or you cannot spread disinformation. But in the United States today, it's up to each individual company to draw the line in the sand. And they have drawn very loose lines and were pretty reluctant to stop people from engaging in information or speaking their mind, if you will, on these platforms until they cross two big lines. One is inciting violence and another is undermining the integrity of our elections, which is the basis of our democracy. And so I hear it couched in political terms. Oh, they're trying to stop conservative speech or this kind of speech. No, they're trying to stop speech that is inciting violence and that is trying to undermine the integrity of our election. Those don't seem unreasonable lines for a company to draw. It's unfortunate that companies have to do it, that we don't have a standard. So what you're going to see this year, I'm fairly confident, is more regulation of the tech industry. The tech companies are very powerful. It's the main source of information for a lot of people. And so there need to be rules and everybody needs to know what the rules of engagement are so that we don't leave it up to Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook or Jack Dorsey at Twitter or whoever, Sundar at Google to decide for us what the different levers are. If we all have the same playing field. So, so that has to happen. But we as consumers, you need to be smarter. What are you reading? Where is it coming from? Who says? I can fact check anything in three minutes. And there's so much information out there that is flat out wrong. And if you just take a minute, just wait a minute. Is this true? Now, some people want to believe the disinformation because they live in their filter bubbles. I don't know if you can move them off of that. If you want to believe what you want to believe and you don't care about reality and facts, that's a real, you know, that's a problem. And we have to go re-examine the education system in this country. But from a, from a platform perspective, there can be some regulation and moderation around what is acceptable and not. So then it's not a question of, well, I don't like you. I, I'm banning you because I don't like the color of your hair. I'm banning you because you're saying something this. So you, you can try to couch it in whatever terms you want, but if it comes down to this. And then if we all know what the this is, that might, that might help it. But people are gonna believe what they, they wanna believe. And uh, it's unfortunate, but I do as a journalist think there is fact. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's up to us taking personal agency, like you said, taking a few minutes to fact check and figure out the source or, you know, what's the date on this article? Like how, how that's something I find all the time, these viral videos or viral articles. If you look, they happen like two years ago or, you know, it happened like so far back in the past. And it's like, why are, why is everyone talking about this right now? Like this has happened so long ago. So yeah, I uh, be, being in PR, in tech, uh, I'm definitely seeing kind of more regulation come from the industry, but absolutely agree. You know, it, it is time for, for us as consumers and just people to, uh, to kind of take accountability of, of what we're consuming. So totally, totally agree and with you there. Think before you share. That's what the other thing I would say. Think before you share. Take that minute. Do I really need to share this? What am I trying to achieve here? Am I trying to improve the public discourse or am I trying to cause trouble or or I, I you know whatever I'm just sharing it like what 
we really don't need you to do that unless there's a point to it. So, yeah. Totally. Well, you mentioned earlier, um, and we kind of did talk a little bit about threats, right, to, to the journalism industry, but you mentioned earlier some other threats. I'm curious, what, what are some of those, uh, what, what's keeping you up at night? Well, right now we're all working at home, so I'm not really worried about my journalists getting attacked in the streets. We're not on the front lines covering riots and, and protests and, you know, um, but from what I've seen here in the United States, which I find very, very upsetting, is that people do go up and threaten journalists when they're out reporting and um, and say, you know, horrible things to them, which they've been doing online for a very long time. But the, it's the physical violence that I worry about once we go back to a world where we can be out. There is a lot of online harassment, people doxing or posting your, you know, posting your uh address or personal information um, that is meant to intimidate, harass. People have had to close their um, social media accounts because they're just inundated with threats and really inappropriate. (laughs) I won't even say it's unprofessional. It's beyond that kind of language that would you say that to someone in person? If you, if you did, you'd probably get arrested or you'd be called off as, you know, someone who needed, you know, to take a take a time out, but digital tools allow people to be anonymous. And so from their anonymity, they can be quite, quite mean and beyond mean. They can be threatening. They can cause all sorts of damage and trouble, let alone hack into your systems, take over your accounts, cause trouble for you. So those are threats from a, from a societal perspective. You know, I, I'm from a journalism background where there is truth you can find the source of information. And as journalists, it's our job to be very transparent about where that information is coming from and to not perpetuate disinformation because you're lazy about citing the source. Oh, I read someplace this, let me just link to it. Did you check what you're linking to? Is that legitimate too? Because that is our job as gatekeepers of information. If you have continued disinformation, you get to a situation where people think that wearing masks is a political statement rather than a public health issue. That's where we're living now. The rest of the world looks at us like we're crazy here in the United States. Wearing masks is a public health issue. If you didn't know that, let me just remind you of that. It's a public health issue. It's not a political statement. Nobody is trying to take away your liberty by forcing you to not spread a potentially deadly virus inadvertently to your friends and family or strangers in, you know, in the world. So, so there are very real, um, you know, uh, real world effects of this disinformation. And we saw it January 6th, people believing that this election was somehow illegitimate or that, that is, what is it called? The big lie. If I, you know, I am not a political journalist. I run a tech news site, but I would love to see a political journalist. Let me put this out there. Do the headline. Good news. There was no election fraud. Here's the day. Yay. All of you people who were worried about it and were so concerned and were, you know, marching on Washington because you thought that the election was somehow fraudulent. Good news. It's not true. (laughs) Let me get you the right information. Yes. So... But if people don't believe, even, you know, when you present them with facts, I mean, what kind of a country, what kind of a discourse can you have if you're not even speaking the same language, right? There are seven days and, well, civility 
you know, we've lost a lot of that sense of civility and that is also unfortunate. Um, there is latitude for a lot of speech and different kinds of speech in this country, which we should all be appreciative for. But if you are taking it to an extreme and you're being discourteous or unprofessional or, you know, violent or threatening, it's your motivations that you have to, to look at. What is the agenda behind this? And that's what concerns me is that people are not having real conversations because right. they can't agree that there are seven days in yeah. a week. Right. Well, this sounds like there's going to be like a next wave of uh, a type of journalist out there, maybe a writer or reporter, you know, to kind of help combat this this threat. So I'm curious for for those who are maybe breaking into journalism or they're already in tech, but really interested in in breaking into journalism. What's your advice for those to like be the solution or, or kind of lead this next this next wave, if you will? So we have lots of journalists in this country, which is great. And there are practices that have changed. So if you were thinking of becoming a journalist or want to become a journalist, a couple of things for you. When I started as a journalist, I had a notepad and a pen. And then I would go back and type on my little desktop computer. You know, the generation before me was typing on their IBM Selectrix or their manual typewriter. At least I started on a computer. Uh, then I got a, a digital recorder. Then I got a digital recorder with a USB connection so I could upload the audio file and then I could share the audio. Then I got my smartphone where I can record videos and take photos and I could do interviews and I can set up my little tripod and with my Bluetooth remote control record myself. So the, your skill set just in terms of gathering information and storytelling, you have to do a lot more as a reporter than even five years ago, because technology has changed the way we report. From the perspective of how you cover something, we live in a world where information is passed in like two seconds, right? I don't need to tell you something has happened because you've probably seen the headline or read the tweet or you got a notification on your phone. So that's the who, what, why, where, when model of journalism, which is when I you know, was starting, you write inverted pyramid, you do the who, what, why, yeah. where, when, and it gets you know, Believe. less important information, right? Yep. Well, we already know the who, what, why, where, when. So now to be a journalist, your first story should be the so what. Mm -hmm. Okay, this happened. Here's what it means and why you should pay attention. So that means you should have subject matter expertise. You should know what you're writing about, whether you know all of it, the ins and outs. You know, that's something you build over time. But to be an effective journalist today, you should have an area of expertise. We have tech reporters, but in tech reporters, I have people who know software, who have hardware, who know entertainment services, who know the guy who knows about routers or Wi-Fi right. networks, right? There's a level How of ads work. <laughs> right? PR, you're not repping the same companies. They all have different <laughs> languages and different vocabularies. So the same thing for journalism. If you want to be a journalist, what is your area of expertise? We don't need people who know how to write. A lot of people know how to write and they know how to write really well. We need people who know how to write, who know how to report, which is to ask the questions. And then we need to, to know what the context is. Why do I care? What does it mean? You know, something happened. Okay, something happened. How's it going to affect me? So I would, in, so when I go to talk to people, they're always like, can I, should I be a journalism major? I'm like, you can be a journalism major to learn how to 
write and report. That is super useful. But I would also do a minor in something. Do you want to write about politics? Go get a degree in political science. Do you want to write about business? Go get a degree in business or economics. Do you want to write about art? Go become an art major. Do you want to write about sports? Go and learn all the rules for all the games that you want to, or all the sports that you want to write about. Everything that you write about has language. It has players that you should know who they are. And then it has the, the questions that you should ask that matter. And so the more that you can do that, the more valuable you are to a news organization, right? I can walk in and say, I know all the tech CEOs. I can email them and get an interview. How valuable is that? Oh yeah, contacts right? alone, absolutely. Right. So if you don't have contacts, then you build those on the job. You do that by writing stories that matter, but it does start from knowing what you're writing about. And when I was a young reporter, it was just learning to be a reporter. And then you go work, you know, you go to work for a paper and they'll just assign you to a beat and it doesn't make a difference. That we we passed that. Information is so there's so much information that we need people who are experts or very, very knowledgeable about something so that they can write the so what story when something happens and tell you that. So that is the most important thing I would say to anybody who wants to be a reporter. Even if you're an okay writer, there's always editors who can make your writing you know, sound better. But if you know something they don't know, because you know something really well, that's super valuable. So, so what? Yeah. I love that. I mean, I, I, I think about that just in, in my work as well, you know, from a PR perspective, what, what is, are we translating as a business to audience A, audience B, and what is it that audience A is going to care about that maybe isn't relevant at all to audience B and, and, and vice versa. So I think that's great advice just, just for general, general people as well, journalism and, and also kind of everybody, but Connie, it's been awesome chatting with you. I've learned so much. I, I really appreciated all of your time. And before I let you go, I, I'm interested to to hear what's going on with CNET. Is there anything new that we can uh, keep an eye out for? Yeah, I mean, CNET, as I say, now we're in year 26 and we're still all working at home. We're writing about a lot of different topics. We're writing about some of the new trends that are changing the way that we live and work. And I mentioned telemedicine and health. So that's been a big area of interest for us over the past year. So we're writing about that. There were a lot of products that were going to be released last year that are not being, that weren't released for a variety of reasons. You couldn't get the supply chain or companies weren't ready to bring them. So we're going to see a big rush of new products this year because of the pent up demand for what happened last year. Uh, the rules around social media and what is uh Fake news, I put fake in a quotes because that is a term that has a specific meaning in social media dialogue and conversations. That is something we're going to be watching and ditto with um, just big tech and all of the regulation that's going to happen. We have a new administration in place that has a very different point of view of how to look at some of these issues than the prior administration. So that's going to set up a whole string of stories. So I'm really happy that CNET has done um, a really good job of continuing to manage through this really crazy abnormal year that we've lived through. And so I'm very proud of our team for sticking in there, working, being flexible, working on the fly, learning new tools. Our reporters this past year had to learn how to be videographers and photographers uh, because there was nobody to take photos for them. They couldn't go on photo shoots, right? So it's just been a 
it's been a terrible year and that there's so much, so many people we've lost because of this terrible uh, pandemic, but it's been an interesting year in how much technology has now become such a part of our lives. Like we are glued to it and we're not going back from a lot of the things. We are having this conversation via Zoom. And even though one day we could have this conversation in person, there's going to be a lot of zooming in the future so like you said maybe maybe next time we have this conversation we'll be at a cafe ordering off the wall and having <laughs> a robot bring us our coffee <laughs> i mean i'm a fan of star trek i know there's the star wars fan star trek it's a religious dispute i'm a star trek fan <laughs> we can save I, that for another conversation <laughs> yes but that vision of talking to devices in a world where you don't want to touch anything because then you have right. to like sanitize Terms. That's going to drive the adoption of voice navigation systems. You can walk up to a door. Sure, there are sensors that will open the door for you, but you're going to be talking to yourself a lot more or talking to things yeah. a lot more because we don't want to touch them. We want these sensors to open doors and close doors and do things for us until we get comfortable yeah. and we get the um, coronavirus under control. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To hear more, check out our website, badassesintech.com, and join our community. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, so follow us and tune in next week. That about sums it up. I'm Summer Falgiano, and this is Badasses in Tech.